All right, um, today's Bible reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1, uh, verses 26 to 45, and that's found on page 830 in the church Bibles. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who, has, and she who was said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. We are starting a series today, a six-week series, called Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, the Women of the Bible. And... uh, based on a book uh, by Rebecca McLaughlin, and we have some copies available if you wanted to read that. But uh, most weeks we're going to do a, a short uh, two-minute clip by where Rebecca speaks to us about some of the key themes about women. And so I'm going to play a, a short video before I speak, that's for about two minutes, talking about the fact that Jesus um, was attractive to women and Jesus took women and brought them to him and there was something special about him where women in the first century who often excluded, rejected, uh, not treated as valuable, nor the image of God found their true value in Christ. Let's have a look at this. People often assume that because the four biographies of Jesus in the Bible were written by men, that they marginalise women. But if you read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you'll find the opposite is true. They don't marginalise women, but Jesus takes women from the margins and draws them close to him. We see this in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus commends the faith of a Canaanite woman after he's just had a confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem. We see it in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus heals a chronically bleeding woman who has said to herself, if I could just touch his garments, I will be made whole, and calls her his daughter. We see it in Luke's gospel from beginning to end. When the good news of Jesus is first revealed to a low-income teenage girl from a podunk town who goes on to become Jesus' mother and a prophet of his birth. 
We see it as Luke names multiple women as eyewitnesses of Jesus's ministry. We see it when he holds up a sinful woman of the city as a moral example to a self-righteous man. We see it when he commends a poor widow for having given more than all the rich people have been throwing into the temple offering. We see it in John's Gospel, when Jesus has his longest private recorded conversation with a Samaritan woman with a colourful sexual history. And when he says some of his most extraordinary, powerful words to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. We see it in all four Gospels as they present to us women as witnesses of Jesus's crucifixion and as the first witnesses of Jesus's resurrection. The Gospels don't marginalise women. They invite us to look at Jesus through marginalised women's eyes. Friends, uh, let's begin. Let me pray. Dear God, we thank you that uh, you speak to us through your word. And as we consider the, the stories of women in the scriptures and how they saw Jesus, may we learn or get another perspective of who Jesus is and his greatness and his beauty and why we ought to follow him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, Rebecca McLaughlin writes, she says, Jesus' treatment of women was revolutionary. We go to the next one, screen. Um, that's why they flocked to him, and I added, still do. Wherever he went, they sought him out. Women sat at his feet and tugged at his robe. They came to him for healing, for forgiveness, and for answers. And Julius Kim is the president of the Gospel Coalition, and he writes about this book. In this mind-stimulating and soul-stirring book, Rebecca McLaughlin reveals that far from dismissing and devaluing women, early Christianity was countercultural for the common good. Indeed, it was propelled by women who were truly known and deeply loved. As we look through the eyes and lives of women in the Gospels, we can more clearly see Jesus in all of his truth and radiant beauty. And friends, this morning we start right at the beginning. We start with Mary and Elizabeth and Anna and the infancy narratives. And you, these are familiar texts because you know the stories. You think, we normally preach on this at Christmas, right? And... Uh, but let's start and, and see what we learn. First, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's a poor, humble teenager. Some suggest maybe 14, 15 years of age. From Galilee, from Nazareth, a backwater town in Israel. Not a famous area. She's a farmer girl, agrarian roots. It's not the big city. It's not a famous town. That's where she's from. God bypasses Jerusalem and other important cities and chooses a humble teenager for his plan to save the world. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I think it's significant here that God chooses to announce to Mary ahead of time what he's about to do. This is a common pattern in Scripture. God tells them ahead of time what's going to happen because he wants them to understand 
that he is behind it all. This is God's work. This is God's choosing. There's a word, then there's a deed. God wants to ensure that credit goes to him in his saving work. Events without words of explanation are ambiguous. You're not quite sure what happened, who did it, who gets the glory. But the word of God interprets the work of God. Takes away any ambiguity. You know this is God at work. The message is to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Mary was a virgin, significant. He was off the house of David, also significant. God is saying he's going to do something miraculous here. But Mary is a recipient of God's gracious favor. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, the word favored means the free bestowal of grace. Even as Mary's a humble teenager, she needs to realize that God's going to grace her. God's going to show favor towards her. She's not famous in herself. She's not special in herself. She is not unique in herself. But God chooses to show her favor. As someone has written, there are other virgins in Nazareth. God could have prepared them. But grace eliminates all boasting. The Lord is with you, Mary, in a way you can't fathom, he says. But never forget, it is a favor, free act of grace. Mary knows she's no one. And yet an angel has brought a special word to her. What does it all mean? Don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The people of God had the Old Testament. They knew that the prophet Isaiah had spoken of a king who would be born to sit on David's throne, Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. The prophet Micah had spoken of a ruler who would be born in David's hometown of Bethlehem, who would bring peace to the ends of the earth, Micah 5, 2 to 5. McLaughlin writes, The angel Gabriel's news delivered to one small town teenage girl was like a flaming torch unleashed in the darkness, a song of hope amidst the groans of Jewish pain. It was a call to arms with a promise of unquestionable victory. God's long-awaited king was on his way. And who is this king? He will be called Jesus from the Hebrew Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. He will be great. Not small, not insignificant, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Uniquely God's Son. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will be a king. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. It's an eternal kingdom. Mary, see this Jesus. She catches her breath for a moment. How will this be since I'm a virgin? Or literally, I do not know a man. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The answer is, how will this be? Simple answer, the Holy Spirit. God's going to do something miraculous to make it all possible. How can a virgin have a child? The Holy Spirit's going to do it. He will come upon you and God will do his work. And then he reminds uh, Mary that because of the pregnancy of the barren Elizabeth, that's evidence that God can do the impossible. 
Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. Mary, listen to me, trust me, for nothing is impossible with God. 14, 15-year-old Mary receiving these words. How does Mary respond to this? Behold, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. McLaughlin then asks, and she's going to do this right through the chapters, in light of this story, how do we see Jesus through Mary's eyes at this moment? Firstly, we see Jesus as the everlasting Son of God, the promised King, the great I Am made flesh. Secondly, we also see the life-upending blessing of receiving Jesus. And now he can only be received by those who know they are nothing more than servants of the Lord. She says, okay, God, if you want to do something in my life, I'm, I'm here. And she continues, you and I have not been called to be the mother of God's only son. We're in a different situation. But as we look at Jesus through his mother's eyes, we see how God grabs ordinary folk to be his chosen agents in the world. When you and I let Jesus in, our humdrum lives become a buzzing center of a miracle. However little it may feel that way at times. We are Christ's body on earth, his hands and feet and arms and mouth to love and serve him and others. You are somebody in God's eyes. You are somebody in God's hands. You are somebody who can make a difference in the world. I think that's what we learn from Mary. She sees submits to Jesus. God takes the ordinary to perform the extraordinary. People sometimes say to me, even when we did the testimonies a couple of weeks ago, oh, I don't have an extraordinary testimony, I'm just an ordinary person. There is no ordinary in God's hands. Amen? There's no ordinary in God's hands. He takes us and he uses us in extraordinary ways. But also as we look through Mary's eyes, we also see the cost of letting Jesus in. Be careful how I say this. Just after the women had a victory last night. I'm glad I'm not a woman. Because I don't want to give birth to a child. You understand women, right? Men are going, yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> Every pregnancy and birth is costly. Nine months on pregnancy often trying to be pregnant before that, morning sickness, a changing body, a growing baby, constant tiredness, sometimes depression and anxiety. And then, then you have the birth. That's just a lead-up. Then they let you take the baby home. I remember my wife and I, after, we did all the pre-baby I mean, pre training, did all those courses, and then after two days they said, well, you can go now. What do you mean I can go now? What am I going to do with this baby? Right. They trust us and you've got to feed it. Change its nappy and pray that, pray that it's breathing every time you put it to bed. You know the anxiety, right? You put them down, you go and check all the time. It's a never-ending sacrifice to be a mother. But for Mary, it was more than this. I think we need to come and tap into Mary's life. She risked much more with Jesus than she would have with any other child. She risked her reputation, her marriage prospects, 
her community, even her life when she replied to, to Gabriel, I am the Lord's servant, may your word be fulfilled, to me be fulfilled. Potentially ostracized by the society. She wasn't married. Accusations potentially of sleeping around. It says, whatever the Lord wants, I'm in. Be captured by her humility and her trust. It was risky to be Mary in that first century. After Gabriel left her, Mary rushed to see the one person who might understand her older relative. Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist and a prophet. Let's have a brief look at her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Get this picture, right? You need to picture it. Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, and her voice sets off a chain reaction. The unborn baby, John, leaps in Elizabeth's womb. That's a kick in the guts. Elizabeth is then filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, great leaders of God and prophets were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out on on all. That happens in Acts chapter 2, right? But God pours out his Holy Spirit now upon Elizabeth to speak God's word, to understand God's truth. And on Mary's greeting, she cries out, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured? This is, in effect, a prophecy that the mother of my Lord should come to me. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promise to her. Mary doesn't need to tell Elizabeth the news. Elizabeth knows. The Holy Spirit has revealed to her what Mary has been told by Gabriel. She knows that Mary is carrying her Lord, that Mary believed what God has promised. And friends, at times in the Old Testament, God spoke through female prophets. But right here, God grants Elizabeth the gift of prophecy to glimpse who Jesus is even before he's born. So through Elizabeth's eyes, what do we see? That Jesus is our Lord even when that's not remotely how things seem. Jesus is in embryonic form, invisible to human eyes. He has no earthly power at all, but spirit-filled Elizabeth knows better. She knows she is in the presence of the Lord. Well, let's go back to Mary for a moment. Elizabeth's words are all the confirmation Mary needs. A remarkable thing's about to take place. She's going to give birth to a baby who will be the son of God. But have you ever thought to yourself, where is God in planning to save the world? He's occupying himself with two obscure, humble women. One old and barren, one who was young and a virgin. And Mary is so moved by a God who would take nobodies of the world and use them for his purposes. And she sings what is known as the Magnificence. And Mary and Elizabeth are wonderful heroines in Luke's account. God honours their lowliness, their cheerful humility. Elizabeth says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? The mother of my Lord would come to me. Mary says, 
The Lord has been mindful of the humble state of his servants. And so as I consider these two women, I think the only people whose soul can truly magnify the Lord are people like Elizabeth and Mary. People who acknowledge their lowly estate and are overwhelmed by the grace of the magnificent God. If you think you are good and therefore God ought to look after you, ought to save you, ought to work in your life, then you won't truly rejoice in all he's done for you. When you realize you're a nobody and God takes a nobody and saves them and uses them, then you can rejoice in him. So we get to her song now, point three, her song, The Magnificence, Luke 1, 46 to 56. And I've, I think what is also amazing as we look at the song she writes is that Mary seems to have a good grasp of the Bible as a 14 to 15 year old Jewish girl from a backwater town, Nazareth. For in her song, she seems to have been influenced by the song of Hannah in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Remember, Hannah was barren too. She couldn't have children and people mocked her and put her down. And she prayed to the Lord that the Lord would give her a child. And the Lord answered her prayer. And Samuel was born. And and the two songs of praise are similar, but they're not replicas of one another. It seems that, uh, I think John Piper puts it this way, it seems that Mary is so steeped in Scripture that when she breaks out in praise, the words that come naturally to her lips are the words of Scripture. She's been reading the Scripture, knows the Old Testament. Don't think these kids didn't know the Word of God, these young girls. She knew the Word. She writes a song which links her prayer to what God had done in the Old Testament. And I'll say to you, do you want joy in your soul today? Be like Mary. Steep your heart and mind in the Scriptures. Day and night. You have to know what the Old Testament says. You have to know what the New Testament says. That when you face life situations, what you say and how you live overflows out of the Word of God. When you have a hard question, you know the answer because it's in the Word of God. You've memorized it. You know it. And someone questions whether God really loves you, you know the Word of God and you'll remember that Christ died for you. Christ rose again for you. And God is a good shepherd, for example. That the words just keep coming out of your heart and your mind. It just overflows. That's what we said about witnessing a few weeks ago. That sharing your story and your testimony, if you know the Word of God, it just, it just comes out naturally. And for Mary, as she reflects on God's goodness, she rejoices. And firstly, she, three areas of her rejoicing. There is Mary's expression of what she feels in her heart, verse 46 and 47. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. said, in my inner being, I just glorify God. Secondly, she mentions what God has done specifically for her as an individual. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Rejoices in her heart because of what God has done for her. But more than that, Mary has a a wider perspective. It's amazing for a 15-year-old girl. So you've got to be amazed. You've got to think, how did she get all of this? She spends the most of the time describing the way God in general works. That he undertakes for the underdog who calls on his 
for his mercy. Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him. Verse 52, he has lifted up the humble. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. God is on the side of the poor, the underdog. is often rejected because God wants to overturn injustice. And God opposes and abases the proud. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. 53, he has sent the rich away empty. Mary, young 15-year-old girl, think about it, you nine students in our youth group. Knows this stuff. Writes a song about this stuff. It's not a Taylor Swift song here. About a broken relationship, the latest boyfriend. This is about God working in human history. It's through Hannah's and Mary's eyes we see that Jesus is the one who turns the tables on all human power. He magnifies his greatness by blessing the lowly who admire his greatness, by basing the proud who resent his greatness. But then we get to Mary and Jesus' birth. She gives birth to Jesus far from home and without the most basic comforts. Born in Bethlehem, the birthplace of King David, that is significant. But far from being born in royal luxury, Jesus comes into the world in poverty. Mary wraps him in cloths and places him in a manger because there's no place for them in the inn. Mary prophesies that through Jesus, the Lord would exalt the poor at the expense of the rich. That's in her song. When she lays Jesus in an impoverished crib, she witnesses the pivotal moment's point of, his, of this reversal, as the greatest king in history was wrapped up in her poverty. It's not a surprise in this upside-down kingdom that an angel announces such momentous news now to a group of poor ragtag shepherds. Jesus can turn this kingdom upside down and he himself is born, not at home, but placed in a manger, an animal feeding trough. And then the, the word first goes out to some poor shepherds, more outsiders. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, I'll bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And the shepherds are probably thinking, why are we getting the word from God? Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And they go, wow. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And they go to find this baby. More outsiders being drawn in to the message of Christ. How do we see Jesus through Mary's eyes at this moment, McLaughlin writes? We see him as the one through whom God's promises are already coming true. We see that the lack of room at the inn is not a mistake, but a message. Jesus came for the poor and excluded first. But he's also a saviour for all the people, rich and poor, male and female, young and old. As Mary learns to nurse her son, she also learns more of who he really is. He is a saviour who is Christ the Lord. But it doesn't finish there. Then she comes across Simeon and Anna. In the temple, Jesus was taken to the temple uh, so that Mary and Joseph could make 
the sacrifice required for a firstborn. We have dedications, they had sacrifices. Now poverty is underscored again. They offer the lower income sacrifice. A pair of doves or two young pigeons, it says. There's different levels depending on your, uh, your material state, how much money you had, what offerings you would bring to the temple. For them, it's the lower income sacrifice. But poverty can't hide who Jesus is. Simeon and Anna were waiting for the birth of Jesus, hanging out in the temple. And Simeon says things like this. Apologies for going to the bloke now, because we're talking about Jesus through the eyes of women, but he's in there too. It says, it has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah, verse 26. So Simeon, verse 28, took the baby in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Let me die. (laughs) I've been waiting for this child. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory of your people Israel. This baby. I'm holding this baby. We've been waiting for centuries for this baby. God, you said you've got to send this baby. I have my hands on him. But then he says, you think that's good? But Mary, there's a warning for Mary now. This child, verse 34, is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. It's been good news up to this stage. Now a sword will pierce your heart, Mary. Gabriel told Mary that she was highly favoured of God. Elizabeth told Mary that she was blessed among women. Now Simeon tells her a sword would pierce her soul. These words must have cut her to the core. She'd already risked disgrace. She'd already experienced the pain of childbirth and its demanding aftermath. But this most blessed of women has more suffering to come. Friends, if we look through the eyes of Mary at this moment, we see that being close to Jesus means embracing suffering. Jesus would be opposed and her heart would be impaled. And we see this opposition starting off from his infancy. The Magi come from afar to visit and worship him. The nations come. They see And she sees that Jesus is God's promised king. Yes, he is. And yet Herod wants him dead. He puts the order out to slaughter all boys younger than two in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt like refugees. Sometimes we miss that bit in the Christmas story. The young woman who said, may it be as you want, Lord, engaged in a tough calling, a costly calling. 
And we will see later in her life, she didn't always get the calling too. But Mary would have been encouraged though by the words of the prophetess Anna, who's also in the temple. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Peniel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Can you see Anna? And Simeon says, this is the child. Anna's running around the temple. This is the child. This child is going to lead to the redemption of Jerusalem. And Mary's listening in and Joseph are listening in. This child is going to bring redemption. This child is going to change the world. This child. And Mary's listening in with hope. The redeemer of God's people. That's what we see through Anna's eyes. Let me conclude. There's no five-point or application today. Just be captured by the story. Mary and Elizabeth and the prophetess Anna lived very different lives. Mary was young and poor and seemingly insignificant. Elizabeth lived most of her life with the cultural shame and personal grief of infertility. Anna had been widowed, young, and was now old. But each spoke words inspired by God to help us to see who Jesus is. As we look through their eyes today, I hope that we would see Jesus as he truly is. The Son of God, born in poverty, revealed in history, sent to redeem his people and to be God's promised everlasting universal king. A king deserving of our worship and our undivided devotion. No matter what it costs, no matter what we lose, because he is everything to us. May we be like Mary and Elizabeth and Anna to the glory of God. Let me pray. Lord God, you've taken us into these scriptures that we are familiar with and yet in some ways unfamiliar with. Open our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus through the eyes of Mary, who counted the costs, endured the shame, was pierced by a sword, but was faithful. For Elizabeth, who you blessed in her old age and inspired her by your spirit to see the glory of Jesus in Mary's womb. And Lord, may in one sense we be like Anna and Simeon who have been waiting for the redemption of Israel and rejoice in the redemption. May we rejoice in your redemption and share it with others, that others too would share in the joy of your redemption. Whatever it costs, because you're worth it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.